DCM works. We all played RuneScape as children. Uh, hey guys, this week I'd like to thank the patrons Callie B and Brendan A. McQuaid. You're both champs. And um, I hope it's cooler wherever you live than it is here. Oh, sweet Christ, I hope it is. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the Art for Artists podcast, the official podcast of DCM Works. Whoa. I'm your host, as always, David, creative director, lead writer of DCM Works. Joined as always by my co Ben. Hi. Hey, I only got the words that time. Yeah. Uh, this week, we're talking about monsters. Ooh, spooky. Don't blink. Don't even blink. Blink and you're dead. They are fast, faster than you could believe. Don't turn your back. Don't look away and don't blink. Before we do that, Ben, you know what it's time for? No. What are we listening to? I don't know. What, uh, what did you listen to this week, Ben? Uh, what did I listen to this? I, I ended up um, watching the entire first season of an anime called Orin High School Host Club, mm-hmm. which is a reverse harem anime <laughs> and i watched the entire oh, thing boy. and it's amazing and i love it and i'm going to go home and watch the second season oh dear well if it makes it's... you feel if it makes you feel any better about your life i watched three seasons of californication <laughs> in a week i fucking love i watched an anime where a girl is like mistaken for a guy and then is basically sold out to be a male hooker like you know how it's a, it's like so it's called a host club mm. But that's just lost in translation as an escort club. Oh, just without the sex. okay. Yeah, okay. And it's horrible, but I love it. It kind of does that thing where it's like the animation's good, oh, so I'll yeah. watch it. Yeah, yeah. Oh, God. It's done by a really good studio. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's, um, it's, and it's, the dub is done by Mad Men, so it's decent. Uh, yeah. Mad Men is great. It's not like four kids. <laughs> well, I think Funimation is one of the best dubbers. Yeah, but... Far. Yeah, Madman do a good job. Madman. Um, yes, I've been. I watched a lot of Californication. I've been playing the Darkest Dungeon, which is the mm. most depressing game of I all love time. That game. It is brutal. It's so good. Um, worth checking out. I'll do a video on it at some point. I just haven't had time. Yeah. Um. So, Very Dark Souls. Yeah, it's really Dark. Souls. You know Souls. how we love our Dark Souls. Well, yeah. it's like Dark Souls, but D and D. It's so good. Yeah. Um, it's like it's the yeah. It's like a very dark D and D. Yeah, it's great. It reminds me a lot of the campaigns I used to run. It's very, yeah. very, very, very well done. But that being said, um, this week we're talking about monsters, uh, and this is for a specific reason. So I got a question from uh, Merlin's Beard in Dunland. <laughs> I'm assuming neither of those things. Merlin's Beard. I'm pretty sure Dunland is in Lord of the Rings too. So I don't. Yeah, it is. <laughs> yeah. So. Oh, actually. Before we go on, I also watched a fan edit of the first three. Oh yeah, the prequels. The prequels. It's the uh, I think it's the Phantom prequels, is what it's called. Yeah, it's the one that starts with the Darth Maul. It starts uh, yeah. It starts with the Darth Maul fight, and that's the only scene from the first movie in it. (laughs) And then it's just two and three condensed. Mm. It's all right. I mean, it still has the problems of the prequels, but it's. But you miss one of the best parts of the prequels, which is the opening scene of. Uh, the Phantom Menace where Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan... I, yeah, that's the one thing that's I... That's so good. I love Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan as Jedi. Yeah. Because Qui-Gon's probably the most interesting Jedi in yes. any of the films. Well, in the extended universe, he's fascinating. Because he's, he's grey. He's a grey uh, Jedi. More or less, yeah. He, yeah. He, um, he's really morally ambiguous, and he's not yeah. he's not opposed to just, like, Jedi mind-tricking people to get what he wants. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of why... That's kind of where some of Obi-Wan's stuff come from, which you see Well, it's why Obi-Wan film. is such a bad Jedi, uh, at the end of the day. Well, Obi-Wan uses is, like, the most prolific user of Jedi mind tricks. And well, he's at also, least in the movies. Yeah, in the movies he is, but he's also one of the worst at it in the extended universe. That's why he does a hand gesture. That's why he gesture. does the hand thing, yeah. yeah. 
Um, anyway, so yeah, that's what I watched. Yeah. <laughs> it's like um, two hours long. I recommend it. It's, on it's YouTube. worth it's worth checking out. Yeah. yeah. Um, so this question comes from Merlin's Beard in Dunland. Um, <clears throat> I've just started writing a screenplay for class. The required genre is thriller, and I'm, and I am well stuck. The only requirement is that the story is a thriller, and I've managed a scenario, but can't seem to get it to move. The biggest problem is finding a scary antagonist with a decent motivation. Struggling to think of something that hasn't been done and is repeating. If you have any ideas or thoughts on antagonist, antagonists slash monsters, I'd love to hear them. From Merlin's Beard in Dunland. <laughs> the thing with thrillers is that most thrillers these days, the protagonist is the antagonist. They sort of do that just easy to play the good guys, the bad guys. Oh, that's not a thriller though. Like a thr- So like from a... Well, getting... I'm, I'm talking like... No, I know what you mean. Like the... the, the like the... Black Swan thriller. Yeah, see, that's not a thriller. <laughs> this is the thing with genre is Ugh. is it's called a thriller in film or whatever but it's not on the genre clover it's not actually a thriller okay like a thriller is anything where it's like it's a combination of two subgenres which is i think detective stories and crime or i think no i'm not sure it's it's a combination of two i can't remember i should have written that down i did do research but <laughs> yeah it's a combination of two genres to make thriller and thriller is basically any crime story or detective story where at the end of the day, there's personal stakes for the protagonist. Yeah. So a normal detective story might be like, Sherlock Holmes is investigating a murder, and he finds out who the murderer is, and there's some danger in the middle, and then he solves it, and it's fine. So Shutter Island is a thriller. Yes, because the main antag- the main protagonist becomes a victim along the way. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So Silent Hill's a thriller. Yes. Because he's looking for his daughter and... Silent Hill 2, at least. Yes. Whereas something like The Evil Within is just a detective horror story. Yeah. Um, which eventually becomes... You can have, like, you can intermingle and change out of genres and into them as you go yeah. through. Um, but, so, I guess the... Talking about antagonists and monsters and stuff, um, I guess we'll talk about... We'll, we'll go through your stuff first, because mine's kind of a little more um, theoretical, I suppose, but... Yeah. I just know a lot about monsters. Yeah. That's about it. <laughs> the only real hard and fast rules you have um, is that whatever it is either needs to be uh, some kind of... Something we can relate to, so a human of some kind. doesn't necessarily have to be a person. Or removed enough that we fail to understand certain aspects of it. Yeah. Um, and this kind of goes against what we said last week, which is that, uh, it, that you don't necessarily have to have clearly defined rules that are understood within the world. No. Um, if you... If you don't define the rules and you keep it all cloudy, mm. then that just raises the tension mm. because the viewer doesn't know what to expect. And it can often raise the stakes. Like, if you look at something, a grey alien, uh, one of the great alien films, Alien. Um, um, yeah, so I guess Alien's a great example because the stakes continually escalate. I love Alien. The more you learn about the monster, the more terrifying it becomes. Well, in the first movie, you don't learn much at all about the alien. Mm. And even the second movie, you don't really learn that much more about the alien specifically. Um, so only when you get to like the sort of extended mythos and Prometheus, mm. when you sort of learn a bit more, or like the books. Um, Balian's really good in the first movie because it's like the alien is revealed like multiple times, but every time you see it, it's changed because the alien evolves really fast. Yeah. So the first time you see the alien, it's technically just the face hugger, mm-hmm. and then you see the chest buster, and you're like, "What the fuck? Like, what is this weird little white thing running around?" Yeah. You think it's you think it's just this thing that pops out of people's chest, and you think, and if like at first watching, you think the face hugger is the main like the main antagonist. Mm-hmm. You're like, "Oh, this thing that makes yeah, something exactly. pop out of this chest." Yeah. And it just makes this little white thing that runs off, and you're like, "Okay." But then 
when you slow like as the movie goes on like the alien grows up and becomes a smaller alien it kills the cat i think that's an alien one yeah it kills the cat yeah and you're I like so. no the cat i think so so you're like okay the alien's big enough to kill a cat now yeah and then when it's sort of like the first time you really see the alien for the first time which is comically hilarious to watch now because it's clearly a guy in the suit still terrifying it's clearly a guy in the suit, it's clearly a guy in the suit uh is in the um when they're crawling the the vents which mm-hmm. is like now it's such a cliche but back then you know the idea of crawling an event was like oh spooky when now yeah, it's like it's you're going to die vents crawling events is like dragons yeah um yeah. but okay so what notes do you have you've got you've got some stuff jotted down i want to go through your stuff first cause yeah mine's a bit so like for me there's like three types of monsters mm-hmm. that sort of are common and most of my like ideal like most of my ideas for monsters is completely basically paraphrased from an extra credits episode uh-huh so they do an episode on monsters and horror in general. It's really good. You should watch it. So there's like three types of monsters. There's sort of like abstract monsters, which don't really show themselves. And a lot of the time it's like something psychological, something like sort of unknown. And the, and like the horror you get out of that is like the viewer scaring themselves. Yeah. Most of the time, like they will reveal like the monster at the end, but like for a long time, it'll just be a, a continuous buildup. Um, it is kind of of oh, a thing. I mean, yeah, is kind of an example of that because you don't. It's never actually really a specific thing. Uh, it's, another great example of that is The Mist by Stephen King. Yeah, um, where it, there's there's monsters or and stuff in thirteen oh eight, thirteen oh eight, fourteen. The hotel, the hotel one. Four, what number is it? Four. It adds up to thirteen when you add up. I can't numbers. remember. Doesn't matter. I think it's thirteen oh eight. Um, no, it's fourteen oh eight, fifteen oh eight. Some number where there's a room and it it's kills. the hotel. It's the hotel. It's an one. amazing short story. Oh yeah, and, and a great film. And the movie's good. Like yeah. that's the same thing where it's just like you don't know really what the monster is apart from anyone that goes in the room dies. Um. The yep. Sure. Yep. Good. So Check. abstract. One. Second one. Yep. Uh, monsters that sort of represent the worst in the protagonist. Oh, so like a foil of some kind. Yeah. So you have you have the protagonist for your story, and if and you make a monster that sort of represents like something that they don't want to sort of come to terms Voldemort. with. Voldemort. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, he's not really a monster, but like, yeah, basically. Well, uh, effectively. He's, well, if we're talking antagonist, he's yeah. the embodiment of that. Uh, another good one is like Pyramid Head from Silent Hill. Mm-hmm. Again, stolen from the X Credits episode. Yep. Uh, Pyramid Head's sort of like, like when Silent Hill goes from like thriller into like survival horror is about when you meet Pyramid Head. Yep. And you realize this, is, this isn't just a weird town that's actually fucked up. Like, there's some weird shit going on. <laughs> and Pyramid Head is kind of this really weird embodiment of lust. Yeah, it's, it's kind of... A lot of, of rape. Yeah, I'll, it's I'll, a bit odd. I'll talk about that in particular. Pyramid Head's weird. Not Pyramid Head in particular, but that idea I'll talk about a bit later. Yeah. Um, so what was, what was the category that that was? So that's, like, representing to the protagonist. Yeah, so, like, the foil of the, yeah. of the protagonist. So that's, like... So the third one is kind of an extension of that, where mm. you have a monster that represents part of the human... Like, part of humanity. Mm-hmm. And that's a lot harder to do, because you can't take... You can't just, like, take your protagonist and then find an element of them and then represent that element in your monster. You have to take an element that is shared among everyone... And then portray that in a monster. So it's really hard to pull off, and you see it in most sort of like classical monsters. So like Dracula is basically greed. Yeah. Like he represents like being selfish, being, you know, putting your 
like putting yourself over others yeah you know gluttony stuff like that um zombies are an interesting one because they're sort of just like zombies are just people essentially they're just kind of the animal person yeah and they sort of like zombies do a thing where instead of being this like the scary thing itself they just allow like like the true human nature to come through yeah like they allow for situations which are scary so they're sort of in that element where you know you put people in a situation with zombies and suddenly everything goes to shit and society just falls over completely and then the zombies only become part of the problem yeah like you you watch like the walking dead especially the later seasons and there'll be like zombies walking in the background and the characters just won't even react to them yeah and like that's the, not the because that's, that's not, not the, the problem pro- yeah the like, problem is the other cunts because <laughs> and even the even in the games the walking dead games you know you're not worried about the zombies like past the first episode it's you're worried about the people. other people yeah that's exactly right so those for me are sort of like the three types mm-hmm. of like monsters and the first two are like the easiest to do yeah because you just you know when you make something that's abstract you have you sort of just put your you put your viewers in an environment where it's okay to be scared you know mm-hmm. you just put them in a setting where being scared is like to be expected and then you hint to the monster and people will scare themselves Yes. You know, it's it's overplayed a lot when you just have, like, really high-pitched music and you just slowly zoom in on, a like, an empty door. Yeah. Like, you know, like, it's in every film, but it's it's a very easy way to get scares. Mm-hmm. Um, the second type is a little bit harder to do because you have to, like, construct an interesting protagonist and then sort of mirror them in a way that isn't completely obvious, that isn't, like, totally ham-fisted. Yeah. Like, don't pull, like, a... to be attainable. Yeah, don't pull, like, what Metroid did, where they literally created, like, dark Metroid. Oh, you mean reverse Flash. Yeah, <laughs> like, don't just, don't do, like, a literal, like, well, mirror image the... of them, because your audience will just go, we get it, it's an evil version of the protagonist. Yeah. Like, if you can do it really subtly, then it'll sort of, like, it'll subconsciously hit people, but they don't really know why this monster is so scary. Yeah. Um, I think... <sighs> I don't want to. The third one's just hard as balls. Like, yeah. Good luck. It's well. Look, here's <laughs> here's what I would. So I guess, particularly because the question is about that idea of like constructing that and that, uh, of some kind of an antagonist or a protagonist. Is what I would suggest is that every story starts with the kernel of like, whether it's a game or a script or a film or whatever it is, you start with the kernel of character. Yeah. So in your head, somewhere vividly, you have a main character or a person in that story. Of some description. That's usually how it starts. Yeah. Then a setting kind of builds around that. Or a setting and then you populate it with a person and that becomes your focus, right? So what I would suggest is once you have that person, so maybe the story's about uh, the character Jack and he works in a boat. Yeah. But, you know, work out the scenario that Jack is in. So he's on a boat and uh, it's a cruise ship maybe uh, and there's like 400 or 500 people on there. Uh, They lose all communication. They run out of petrol and then a body is found and that's yeah. your scenario that's the setting the thing is when you when you create that setting where it's like you know it's isolated there's you know you're out of power you have the stakes of you know all these people and then you create the situation of someone dying it's like that's you know you create a situation where it's okay to be scared well so, so from a narrative perspective every story ever told starts with an inciting incident of some kind yeah pretty much <laughs> and if it doesn't it's not a story it's just a th- 
it's an event it's or a it's place. a it's a setting, it's just a right? description. Yeah. So what I would suggest is once you have your inciting incident, so in this case, boat breaks down, something bad happens. Once yeah. you have that, um, I think the most important thing is that you have to spend time with your antagonists. Um, and so you, you, you've got to think about danger as being like a tiger in a cage, right? We like stories because we really like looking at the tiger because it's fucking terrifying. Yeah. Well, like, oh my God, it's going to rip me limb from limb. Oh my God. But we're fine with it because there's a cage. Mm. Your goal as a writer or as a games designer or as a filmmaker or as a script writer or as whatever it is that you do, your goal is to have us start to forget the cages there. Yeah. And the best horror, Stephen King's horror, is brilliant because what happens is he goes... Hey, here's something bad in a, in a, in a tiger in a cage, and you're like, okay, cool, there's a tiger. That's fine, there's a tiger in a cage. Yeah. And over the course of his novel, what happens is you're standing looking at that cage, and eventually you're like, it's out of the cage. I can't see. It. Where's the tiger gone? Well, the sneaky thing you could do is over the course of you know the narrative, make make it a case where like you know, to use the metaphor that the cage is like weakened. Mm. You know, so you're looking at the tiger in the cage. You're like, cool. Tiger's in the cage, but then you see that one of the bars is missing, and you're like, ooh, <laughs> ooh, okay, wait a minute. And then you see that, like, you know, one of the one of the faces of the cage is kind of rusted and falling away, and the tiger's clawing at it. You're like, kind of want to get out of here right now. <laughs> yep. And you, and you can create that build-up. And you could even, you could make a, pretty much an entire narrative where the, the tiger never gets out. But you'll, it doesn't the, need to. It doesn't need to because when you, if you're able to create that build up, the reader will think in their mind. The the reader will create the situation where the tiger gets out, mm. and you can just play off that, and you can end on a sort of on a note that doesn't tell you whether the tiger gets out or not, and it'll just mull in their mind. For yeah, a and long it time. sits with you, and that's kind of what a lot of Lovecraft stuff does, where because because then because a lot of the narrators in Lovecraft go crazy by the end of the story you're left with this feeling of what happened like well, it's it's the same it's the Edgar Allan Poe yeah un- unreliable narrator yeah it's, it's like it's Edgar Allan Poe it's genius and they're both genius at it yeah. like, it's, like it's Lovecraft fantastic. pretty much took Poe and then just like made it a lot bigger. and he, he went here are all the good bits let me throw them in a bag and see yeah. what I can do with it throw yeah. them in the bag with all the tentacles and squid people oh. and shake it around for a bit <laughs> and then the bloodboard happened I guess yeah um, well you know so okay so here's I have an analogy and a suggestion that is a good exercise to start with and then we can kind of take it from there and we'll see what you think yeah so this is an analogy I heard in a writing class a few years ago and I've kind of changed it and adapted it into something that I think is a little more potent but so you're in your car, and you come up to a stoplight, and you look over to your right, so out of your car window, uh, and you see someone who you might fancy. So just like a, if it's a, if you, it was a boy or a girl or whatever it is that you're into. Yeah. Someone you might fancy, um, or whatever your sexual orientation or gender, whatever, you're asexual, it's someone you want to spend time with. Whatever the situation yeah. is for you, that there is someone that you would like to spend time with, right? It works better if it's sexual, though. <laughs> so... In your head, and you don't necessarily have to do this out loud, if this is what you're doing at home, run through three things, um, three categories of things, uh, all of which are really twit. Like, these, the, the categories, you should run through them as if it is the most twisted version of this thing you could do. Uh, so these are, like, the least human things you could do to this person <laughs> in these categories. God. So, <laughs> it's... The three categories are kill them. So how would you kill this person if you could? Yeah. How would you torment them? And how would you save them? Okay. 
And like save them in the least humanely way possible, or is that the antithesis? Like- well, it's like the antithesis. So the whole point of save them, the whole point of the save them category is like, what would you do? What is the least human things you would do to to keep that person safe? Okay, being that they're like the object of some kind of a desire of yours. Yeah. So like, say it's a Batman novel and it's um a Batman comic and it's like Catwoman. Like yeah. the thing, the lengths he goes through to save her are pretty brutal. Like he he might kill, maybe. You know, yeah. we don't know. So. It just on a notepad or somewhere, you dot those out and you go, okay, so I've got kill them, torment them, and the lengths I go through to save them. And you just think about the most extreme things you can think of that you would do to do to that person if you had to kill them or if you had to torment them or if you had to save them. Yeah. And you kind of jot those out and you, you kind of get a, you'll get a roadmap of how fucked up you are. <laughs> and some people it's not very much, some people it's tons, yeah. right? And then what you want to do is you want to kind of, like a potpourri bag, you want to kind of pick and choose a few of those. Yeah. And you want to go, okay, well, my story, uh, our murderer on the boat, for instance. My story, I want my murderer to be friends with the protagonist uh, from, like, maybe maybe the protagonist many years ago um, slept with his girlfriend or something. And this is his revenge. Yeah. Know? And he's going to start murdering people. Maybe that's what we're doing. Or maybe um, maybe he wants to torture this person for no other reason than he enjoys it. So it's just some random guy and he's torturing our protagonist. Whatever the case, you want to kind of pick and choose a few of those things that you wrote down that you would do to that person. Because what you can do is you sort of... If you can channel that stuff into a creation, so a monster, a person, whatever it is, you can then kind of start spending time obsessing about how your protagonist is going to deal with that. Because the more you obsess about your antagonist, the more powerful the situations are you can create. Because your force of antagonism effectively... Like, if you spend enough time with it, it will add twists to scenes that you could have never conceived of. Yeah. So, like, a great example is Hannibal. Hannibal is, at some point... if If you were to write Hannibal... You would sit down and you would say, what are the worst things I would do with another, another human being for pleasure? And that's pretty much what Hannibal does. Yeah, and he's yeah. the embodiment of that. And yeah. then you go, well, what are these other characters in these novels? How do they react to that? And that's where the conflict occurs. Yeah. And so what you'll find is if you have an interesting antagonist, your protagonists become more interesting by definition, and so does your story. Yeah. So that's kind of like, that's a good exercise to go through. And it might sound a bit odd, but once you've done it a few times, it kind of starts to sink in. And you don't really have to do it every time, but once you've done it once or twice or two or three times, it becomes sort of a... You kind of get in touch with, with what is scary. Yeah. Um, and whether that's, like, you know, lust or violence or, you know, the, the thing chasing you in the dark or whatever it is that is scary in your story, the whole point of it being scary is that in some way you could see it... Ha- like, it, it is conceivable that it could happen. Yeah. In th- the in the in the context of when it's of what it's happening in, I think one important thing as well is to make sure that your protagonist is like relatable. Mm-hmm. Like you want, like the best horror is when you when you're able to take the viewer and like pull them into the world. And obviously, the easiest way to do that is to make your protagonist really relatable. Yes, and you know that's the reason why Alien is so scary, whereas Predator is an action film. Yes. Because we can relate to a like a blue collar, just run of the mill person who got pulled into the situation, being Ellen Ripley. Yeah. But we know, like, who can associate with fucking Arnold Schwarzenegger? It's like I mean, maybe, like, maybe some it's, some people sure, but not the majority. Yeah, of people. it's it's hard to associate with a like a hyper strong like super soldier essentially mm. that is Arnold. So it makes this situation of being hunted by this, you know, this crazy advanced alien just sort of not as scary 
when both of the films are being about characters being See, hunted by crazy advanced aliens. That could be scary if we could relate to the Predator instead. Because that's also another way of doing it. So Yeah, and they try to do that a little bit with like Alien vs. Predator, where they yeah. try to humanize the predators. But I don't Especially with like the like the extended mythos with the games where they sort of try to explain what the predators are, you, they try to sort of like make it make them seem more civilized. Yes, so they're playing some kind of a as, culture. Yeah, I just don't think it works. N- no, <laughs> but but like they're they're on the right track. Like one of the best um one of the best antagonists is someone, and this so this is a particular character arc. So we talk about a lot of different character arcs when you talk about writing. Um, so you've got like the classical hero's journey. So you have Frodo. Um, someone gets dropped Pretty far. much everything. Someone gets dropped far away from home. Uh, struggles ensue, they get home and tell everyone about how they got home. Yeah. That's the classic hero's tale. Um, or you have um, the a refor- you have the Reformation story, so bad guy turns good, or yeah. the opposite, good guy turns... Whatever it is. Despicable me. Yep. Um, <laughs> I haven't seen it, but yes. <laughs> the, like the very stock standard bad guy yeah. turns good story. And, you know, every story follows one of these arcs in some way with different yeah. characters. It's the, what is it, seven, twelve stories? Um, well, there's about... It's a little it's more a, complex than that, but yeah. There's, like, basically 12 of them. Yeah, but yeah. there's sort of... And then there's nuances, and you combine them and yeah. thread them through each other and stuff. But one of the best things you can do... Um, shit, I've just blanked. What were we talking about? The 12 stories. The 12 stories. What were we talking about before that? Antagonists. Antagon- uh 12 stories, antagonists. Oh, yeah. So one of the things... The best <laughs> things you can do... Sorry, I'm really tired. Um, <laughs> completely blank. I've been working all morning. Um, <laughs> one of the best things you can do... I've been editing videos all day, so I'm just... Yeah. My mind is gone. <laughs> Um, one of the best things you can do is you take a character and you go, they're clearly the antagonist. So they shoot someone at the start of the, the story. Yeah. Bang. Dead. Maybe, maybe they Blowy. shoot, they shoot the wife, uh, and the husband is forced to run away and they're, they're being pursued by this person. Yeah. One of the best things you can do with that antagonist in that situation is have us understand why. So like, maybe it was, maybe he didn't mean to shoot the wife or whatever. Yeah. And he needs to get the husband because he needs the husband to testify that it was an accident. But the husband is like, no, this guy's trying to kill me. Like, fuck off. And like, maybe yeah. it's, if it's a fantasy setting, uh, maybe there's, there's casualties and it, it, you know, we get this, this epic chase through various locations. It's sci-fi. It's fun, whatever it is. Yeah. But you get to a point where you have a, you have a secondary confrontation. This would happen in like the start of the middle of the second act where we go, you know, the, the, the he's caught, our, our protagonist is caught up to, um, gun is held to his head. Maybe they both have guns, whatever it is. Yeah. Uh, and our, our antagonist is like, I need you to come back. Like, I need you to tell them that I'm, that it was an accident, you know? And the protagonist goes, well, you've killed all these people on the way to getting me to do that. You're clearly a bad guy. Yeah. And he's like, no, but I didn't, I didn't mean to do that. Like, this is all <laughs> fucked up. And then you have some kind of, uh, something occurs and then they're split. And then in the third act, what you get is you can have this antagonist that evolves from just someone that did one thing. So that inciting incident can actually create an antagonist that isn't explicitly bad. But the whole point of that is... The whole point of that is that what you what you end up getting is you end up splitting it down the middle and you can create this division between a protagonist and an antagonist where that it's sort of your, your Venn diagram is really overlapping. Yeah. And that's where you get that weird thing where you start to root for a villain in some stories or... You don't really know who the quote-unquote good guy yeah because you know maybe they're both bad or maybe they're both good whatever it is like it's you know it's kind of like the classic civil war story uh from marvel where both sides are technically good guys yeah and whichever side you pick is still the wrong side because (laughs) 
They're both they're both people the trying brutal, to save people. The most brutal of movies. Um. Yeah. Well, I'm sure it'll be awful. But <laughs> get letters about that one. Yeah. Um. So we'll take a quick break. Um. And we'll come back, and then we'll run through some of my best and worst monsters. Yeah. Um. And then yeah, that'll probably be the show. I'll get some letters as well when I get to it at the end. Totally. But yeah, we'll take a break, and then we'll be back. Okay. Uh, we're back from our break. Um. Hello. Hi. Welcome uh, back, everyone. It's really warm outside. Yeah. It has not cooled down at all. It hasn't cooled down um, here much either. It might have been warmer outside, actually. Fun. Than it was this morning. Um, yeah, so that's good. That's not meant to happen. Um, I got in my car, I was like, mm, my aircon is not doing enough. <laughs> um, okay, so I thought we just blast through. I mean, we talked about Hannibal before. Yeah. Hannibal's like a great antagonist. Not exactly a monster, but great antagonist. I'd call him a monster, <laughs> to be um, honest. If you want to look up, like, there's a really good intricate explanation of why he's a really good... Uh, villain if you go if you google if you google the story grid plus the word hannibal you'll find a really interesting read there um where the guy who wrote the story grid goes through hannibal as sort of why he's the perfect um antagonist and how he produces stories from his antagonism yeah as it were um as i had one of the best monsters that got ruined later on uh, one of the best ones was the weeping angels from doctor who yeah um and that's not just because so it's it's like the fear they play on is this like fear of First of all, them themselves are scary looking. Oh yeah, they're they're pretty. They're creepy. terrifying. But then you know what they do too is they send you back in time so that you live out your life and you die before you were born. <laughs> if that makes sense. Yeah. So like you might get sent back to the 1920s, so you die before 95 when you were born. Yeah. So that way, and they 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 feed off the potential time energy of the life you were supposed to lead. Okay. Because technically, if they get you, they've already sent you back. Yeah. If that makes sense. So that's like the premise of their badness bad things they do to you they're all well and like also they're sort of like their rule i guess like the rule that surrounds them where if you don't look at them they move they move yeah it's a, like that's played in a lot of things i mean there's the scp mm. i don't know the number but it's essentially the same thing yeah. except that that just rips you limb to limb if it catches you yeah <laughs> that well, just plays out that just plain out kills you well there's a really great episode of so the weeping angels basically like the idea is they have this quantum lock where um, they're stone until they're not observed. Yeah. There's a great episode where um, this spaceship crashes on this planet uh, and the the Weeping Angel is, like, wounded by the crash um, and it escapes into these catacombs. Yeah. And so the Doctor and, and this team of people go and... They're basically, like, he, he's helping an old friend uh, hunt it down and neutralize it because yeah. it's this terrifying force of destruction. Um and so they go into these catacombs and they go through and it's sort of... Catacombs are like mazes of the dead in this particular world. So it's like yep. statues of people that have died or whatever. And they're kind of old and rotted or whatever. And they keep going up and, you know, they're like, oh, we're the perfect place to hide for a statue. A weeping angel is in a morgue full of statues. Like, yep. it's perfect. Um, and they're chatting, chatting, chatting. And the doctor's like, oh, well, the people you know, the people of that world had two heads. And he's like, I snogged this one. Per-. Like, you know, the, the way a doctor does. Gives you some backstory. You think it's comedy. Yeah. Um... And they get to sort of the end of... It's a two-part episode. They get to the end of the first episode, and they've been sort of following it up into this catacomb um, toward... So the crash ship basically crashed on top of the catacombs, and it's leaking radiation throughout. Yeah. Um, and there's this moment where the Doctor and this other person just stop, and they're like, oh, we've made a big mistake. And <laughs> he's like, everyone turn off all their lights. And they're like, what? He's like, just do it. So they all turn off all their lights. Um, and he's the only one with a torch on. Yeah. And they're looking at these statues around them. They're just normal statues. And he turns his light off and on, and the statues moved. Yeah. And he's like, oh, 
Amy's like what? Are. He's like every single statue is a weeping angel. Yeah. And the crashed spaceship is feeding them radiation to wake them up again. Yeah. And it's this moment where you're just like, oh my god. <laughs> well, that's the thing with them is that it's the a perfect moment. The creepiest thing about them is that you don't see them move. Like that's part mm. of it, and it means that it take like it's sort of like it plays off the general fear of the unknown. Where mm. It's like you don't know how they're moving. Or, like, why, when they move, or, or why, why, or why, yeah. or anything, they, they just can't, move. They can't talk either, that's no. really scary. Yeah. Um, they do this great, they get ruined later on by some, like, they, it's Moffat, because they were his best, one of his best creations, which is when he wasn't a showrunner. Yeah. They were one of his best creations in Blink, which is, actually, if you haven't watched Blink, it's a, it's an amazing episode of TV, let alone Doctor Who TV. Yeah. Um, which is where they're first introduced, but later on he kind of ruins them, because... He has them slowed down by when it's really cold or whatever. Like, it just... Mm. He just kind of... Like... He kind of wants to throw them in places because they're super interesting. But because of how hard they are to escape, he has to kind of nerf them every time. Yeah. Because you know? the thing with... Because the thing with um the SCP is that it moves at a undetermined speed. You should explain what SCP is. Ah, uh, so haven't. SCP is amazing. If you want... If you want to, like, learn about how to write horror, just read SCP. Or how to write interesting, like interesting monsters that have like a set of rules mm. read scp so scp is the secure containment procedure group uh yeah it's basically it's a wiki online and it's it's all like community written and it's sort of uh each article is sort of like the explanation of like some sort of extraterrestrial being mm-hmm. that this company is like co- like found and collected and like they're archiving them and keeping them so that they don't, like, destroy the world. Yeah, the, w- the wiki is, like, their database. Yeah. That. yeah, and it's, like, it's written in a way where it, like, it reads, like, confidential, like, government documents. Mm-hmm. So every article will start off with the containment procedures. So you, you start reading that on how to contain this thing before they even explain what it is. So you'll be reading something and it's, like, must be contained within three feet of concrete surrounded by two inch thick yep. steel and you're like what the what? hell is it <laughs> and then you read it it is and it's a box and you're like okay but like, then they good. explain like what the box does and you're like, like okay actually like, yeah Ooh, not good <laughs> yeah and there's some really like like sort of again like plays off the abstract like sometimes it'll just be a staircase except they don't know how long the staircase is and that's it there's yeah. just a staircase of undetermined length that just keeps going mm. And, and they'll, so it's they'll basically run... like you have to know what it looks like so you don't get stuck on it because yeah. they don't know where it goes or how long it goes. And for. like there's like f- ridiculous monsters where like if the monster sees a photo of you, it will just run to you and kill you regardless of where you are. Yeah, like you can be on a different planet and it'll leap off the planet and find you. Yeah. Like it'll just it'll just run straight to you and it's like that's unnerving. <laughs> and it's where the it's sort of it's where the scp the i forget like they're all numbered they don't have names some of them have like unofficial names yeah yeah. like code names that they're given but like it's it's an it's an amazing website like and because it's written by the community some of like some articles are just hilarious Mm. like some of the weird things they find like aren't dangerous aren't scary they're just kind of weird they're just odd yeah like there's one of the funniest articles is the it's a rock that makes you procrastinate. That's it. And the article for it is like containment procedures. And it's like, store it in a cardboard box on this shelf. And then it's like step three. And it's like, I'll write this later. Yeah. Like that's the article. (laughs) And it's like, you get, you get ones like that every now and then. And they're hilarious. But like, 
most of the good, like, well-written ones mm. are absolutely terrifying. And in terms of, like, you know, even if you take, like, the idea of one and sort of run with it and, like, morph it into your own, mm. most people won't, A, they won't notice, or B, they won't really care because it's such an open... Yeah, it's effectively open, fla- open, open source yeah. kind of thing. Like, a lot of people mistake, like, Slender for being SCP, mm. but it's kind of the same sort of, like, internet-born monster kind of thing. I think Slender, for those of you who don't know, is basically this um, this creature, when you look at it... Um, it just sort of... It disorientates you when you look at it, uh, and, yeah. and and if you look away and then look back to it'll it'll it's dis- it disappears once you've looked at it, yeah. and then gradually moves closer. Um, yeah, it's sort kind of, of just yeah the like Slenderman sort of like it just appears and kills people. Don't really know. Um, yeah, it's hard to explain, and I think it's because it has it has such like a broad like sort of snippets of it here and there because it is it was like sort of invented on the internet through forums and stuff mm. and like the biggest like the biggest initial sort of source of it was marble hornets yeah which is a series of web videos and then there were like the slender games yeah which just pretty much blew up the popularity of slender man and also that that entire genre of video game as well they created oh, yeah they created survival horror more or less well like camera survival horror Would, through, the, the lens of a, through the lens of a like Outlast camera. is basically a Slenderman game it's a better sl- a, it's a better Slenderman oh yeah like game. it's good and like, yeah. it's not bad but like it has its roots in Slenderman yeah. and I'm, Slenderman's not very good anymore <laughs> no I mean it's 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 kind of like a, it's it's kind of like the proto they gave it too many rules yeah, it, uh, in the newer game at least it, it, the, the newer games are like it's too easy because like it's not it was scary back then it's, it it's, was scary when we didn't know really what it was and you would you'd like google it you'd google slender man and you'd just get these weird black and white photos of like kids on the playground with like nothing really weird looking at it but you'd look at it long enough and then you'd notice this really tall dark yeah it's really figure in the background and you're like mm, i don't know if that was there when i first opened this image like yeah, that kind of thing yeah it's that um what hidden in plain sight yeah almost. there's a great um there was a i don't know if it seems like it'd be a doctor who thing i can't remember what it is oh no it's it's the silence um and the the silence of these creatures where um when you look away from them you forget you saw them yeah yeah they um, are doctor who yeah yeah um and it they they are terrifying because yeah, they because... look scary they sound scary and the, and if you if you try to wrap your head around the idea of them and it scares you, <laughs> my it's like, it's like the worst unnerving. The worst thing about that is that it. The reason that's so scary is that it's unnerving and it's also feasible because you wouldn't remember if they existed. Yeah, like it's <laughs> that's almost the best kind of horror is when it's yeah. when it's built and like that's almost when you want to give it rules. When you say like yeah, because when you, you look it. away, you will forget about it, and then you're like it could literally be anything that it's the same with like the Berenstein principle, which I think we talked about once where it's like, uh, explain that again for the people. Berenstein is this, it's like, it's, it's fake. It's, it's sort of just this joke almost where a lot of people remember the spelling for Berenstein bears, which was this child book yep. to be like B E I N S T E I N. It's like, yeah, it's the Berenstein bears. <laughs> but then you actually look it up and it's actually B E I N S T A I N. So yep. Berenstein bears. Berenstein. And 
there was no like there was no point in time when they, the name was changed it's always been Berenstain Bears mm-hmm. but there's this group of people who have always been like no it's it's always been Baron. when I was yeah. a kid it was Berenstain like, with an E someone's changed it in history so there's this idea that like <laughs> there's this group of people that just inexplicably changed universe yep between the E and the A and obviously most of these people just are mistaken they just didn't really understand they the spelling. remembered it incorrectly. Yeah, but there's it's the kind of thing where it's like, there's no way to disprove it, and there's no way to prove it, the, so it just the, exists. The reason, I mean, it's one of the reasons that stories are so... There is, like, it's the, one of the reasons we tell stories is because it's how we yeah. remember stuff. Yeah. So that, if you can, like, if you can tap into that idea of, like, you are defined by the things you remember, if you can tap into that, so that's why the silence are terrifying. Um, and there's, you know, they, he ends up um, using them to... He, like, defeats them in a really clever way. Yeah, he basically video cameras... He tricks them into saying, you should kill us all. On... In 1969, during the moon landing on TV, intercut between Lance Armstrong landing and saying, it's one small step for man. And the premise is that that video footage has been there since that video footage was ever taken, but no one remembers it because it's the silence. Yeah, because you forget it. And so then every time you see one of them, you kill them. Yeah. And then you forget you killed them. Yeah. And it's like so oh, they that's so over so time clever. they just get exterminated. Yeah, they yeah. kill them. They they get killed off automatically. Yeah, and there's a great, there's an amazing. The the ending to that story arc is one of the best directed snippets of Doctor Who action ever. Yeah, but it's still like yeah, whatever. It's not yeah. great. But but that whole premise of that that is is that tapping into that idea that you define by the things you remember, and so it's scary because you kind of take it away bit slowly. Yeah, you you chip away at that until. And and then, you know, there are characters who, um, when, when you do find out what the silence, the silence isn't the creature, the silence is a religion, but the silence is what the creatures get called, because yeah. that's just sort of what they end up being known as, because um, you can never tell anyone about them. Yeah. Because it's um, sort of just like... Yeah. Yeah. Um, and even, like, you know, one of the characters takes a picture on her phone, but every time she stops looking at the picture, she forgets what it was. <laughs> So when she looks back, she's like, oh my god, it's that thing that I took a picture of that I kept forgetting about, and she looks away, and she's like, yeah, well, yeah. Well, you know, like, it's yeah. quite, um, yeah, it's quite interesting. So it's, it's, and then, you know, some of the characters work out clever ways to remember that they've seen them, so they just get a Sharpie, and they they do tally marks on their arm every time they see one. Yeah, and then they remember that I used to have three tally marks, now, now I, I have, have four. four. So what they'll do is, like, every time they go into a new place, they'll wash them off and start again. Yeah. Um, and so there's a there's an amazing piece of cinematography with that where, and I think if you're writing a script, which this person is, um, Merlin's beard, whatever your Merlin's whatever your real beard. name is, Merlin. Um, when you're writing a script, I think this is a great example of some fantastic cinematography. As you have uh, Amy, she goes into uh, the the it's like a creepy abandoned orphanage, yeah. And the guy who runs it is sort of really out of sorts, and she ends up going up to the top while someone else stays to talk with him. Um, and she goes up with no marks on her arms. Yeah, she goes into this top room, and uh, someone on the radio was like, Do you, "Is there anything up there?" She's like, "Nah, it's fine, it's clear." Um, and she turns around, and she goes to leave, and she looks down, and she's covered in tally marks. <laughs> she's like, "What the fuck?" And she looks up, and they're just fucking hanging from the ceiling. Ugh. And it's just like, "Oh," That's... <laughs> and then it's and then it's on. Yeah, and they can um, they can zap you with uh, they have like a beam they can shoot from their finger that just gives you instantly. <laughs> Like, okay. it's brutal. That's, uh, yeah. Like, that's where it becomes Doctor Who, is when the goofy Yeah, thing that's happens. where it becomes less horror, more just like, we have a thing that blows you up. 
Like, if yeah. if you were trying to write a monster rather than like a sci-fi alien, you would probably they would slowly take your mind or something. Yeah, you wouldn't you wouldn't go the just the zappy thing. You would yeah. go with like a you know maybe every time you rem- every time you see them you like you know go a little bit crazy or something. Or you lose a bit more of your memory. Of that's some just, part like of that's your essentially life. what Lovecraft. Yes. Everything is one of the best Lovecraft um, ideas he had was. Uh, and I think this we we talked about this a while ago off off air, but and yeah. the Stephen King short story yeah. is his homage to to um yeah, to it's Lovecraft. Actually, yeah, it's a very similar. Um, and it's very like he basically was like, This is what I love about Lovecraft, I'm gonna write a short story about it. Yeah. Um and that one is it takes the idea of O C D and makes it terrifying. Yeah. Where it's like you kind of you know, there's I mean it's if you haven't read it, you ha- like it's one of <laughs> it's one of those shorts it's probably it's up there with um the skin game as being one of the best pieces of short fiction yeah. out there. Um, if you haven't read The Skin Game, it's one of George R. R. Martin's um, short stories from Dark Places, which was a collaboration he, Stephen King, and someone else did, uh, where they published a novella of short stories. Yeah. And they're all just kind of like horror. But The Skin Game is a werewolf one. It's probably the best. I think it's one of the best short stories of all time. But equally, Anne is up there. And Anne, the premise there is that you touch these... Um, if you read about this this field um, in somewhere in New England... Um, and, and this character goes, yeah, and, you know, um, I got this letter from my brother who k- killed himself. Um, and he's like, the, he, he was saying he was going to this, you know, this, this park all the time, this, this field, and he just kind of sounded crazy, and he jumped off a bridge. It's a shame. Whatever. Yeah. He's like, so, you know, he enclosed the, the key in the envelope, and I thought I'd go check it out just to see if there was anyone there who knew what happened to him in his last days or whatever. And so he goes there, and he sees these, um, these seven stones in the field. Um, and he's like, okay, there's sort of these big standing stones, big pillars yeah. of, of natural formation of rock or whatever. Um, and he takes a picture of them. And in his picture, there's eight stones. And he looks <laughs> up and there's eight stones. He's like, oh, well, there always must have been eight. Like, that's, yeah. there's, there's eight stones, clearly. Yeah. And so he goes away and comes back at a later date just to double check and see if the person who owns the land is home. And he's like, there's seven stones again. Like, what? That's really weird. Yeah. Um, so he takes another picture and looks up from his camera and it's eight stones again. And he's like, well, like, just, that's really... F-. And then yeah. you kind of get this moment where you're like, oh, no. And so he, get, he gets out of his truck and he walks down the hill and he goes and he's like, maybe if I touch the stone, just to check it's there, just to check that there's eight. Yeah. And he touches it and he's like, ooh, that felt weird. Like, something's wrong here. Yeah. And he is sort of gradually getting more and more symptoms of OCD. And he's like gotta be eight can't be seven he does everything in even numbers all of a sudden and then he's got like this this hectic ocd and he goes to a psychiatrist and the therapist is trying to like help him work through it um and he talks about like if you look through something there's always eight stones but if if there's not there's seven and there has to be eight stones and you gradually get to this point where he sort of starts to sense that these stones um if you look through the camera at the right time of day there's like this dark shape contained within them yeah. And it's like this, you know, Lovecraftian-esque monster yeah. that he can't quite recognize. And yeah. it gradually gets worse and worse and worse until he kills himself because he can't function because he's, like, constantly going back to touch the stone to it's keep it there. Basically Lovecraft. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and there's this great moment at the end where Stephen King, Stephen King's it, where <laughs> the... the you're, you're reading the therapist's notes. Yeah. So he's enclosed the first letter that his patient received from his brother, and it's sort of you're reading his notes. Um that he's enclosed within a letter to his sister. Uh, yeah. And the ending of it is, like, the end of the letter to the sister, and he's like, do not go to the field. Do not go to the field. You can't go to the field. 
and then it goes, she goes to the field. Well, the the best part about it is that he he then goes um enclosed is the key to the field. Oh, great. Um, and yeah. it, it's like love, blah blah blah, and it's just like, oh. yeah, <laughs> like it's just yeah. Uh, and there's a there's a um at the start I I always forget this but it it gets worse because then she's actually writing. <laughs> it's it's I think it's his one of his relatives. No, it's one of his sister's relatives or one of his aunt's relatives or something that has enclosed all of this and is writing and sending it to someone else's psychiatrist like it just there's yeah it's like layers on layers yeah yeah same how same thing with because you recommended and to me when i was talking about uh house of leaves yes and that does a similar thing Mm. where it's just layer upon layer layer and you don't know where reality starts you become this this hot mess story begins (laughs) yeah and by the end of it, you're just convinced nothing in this book is yeah. real. You're like, this is all a lie. But it all has to be real or else none of it makes sense. Uh, okay. It's brutal. <laughs> Sorry, we got off on a tangent. Yeah. <laughs> but I just love stuff like that. Like, it's that's it's scary because it's hard to identify. It's, yeah. it's, it's um, you can't put your finger on it. And the minute you and, do, you wish you hadn't. And in these stories, there is still an antagonist. Like, in N, it's the seven slash eight stones. In House of Leaves, there's a movie yes and that is the movie is very dis- and inside the movie there's even an antagonist which is a house you know it's a yes. typical like weird haunted house story but you're able you are able to sort of develop these like low level just bad things essentially yeah. low level antagonists that you can layer upon to sort of create tension between like the ent- the protagonist which the the reader or the viewer is able to associate with mm. And then the problems that the, the antagonists create. The reason the house works in House of Leaves is because... Oh, sorry. The reason the film is the antagonist is because it becomes the thing that stops everything else from making sense. Yeah, because... The, it gets in the way. Yeah, because the film isn't real. Like, yes. the film doesn't exist. But everything else is saying adamantly that this film exists. And it references it as if it's a real film. As if and it it's references a real film. as if real people have talked yeah, about it. Yeah, and, and it written references it. other real people talking that you about it. You know this in the film. real world. Yeah. Like and there's a quote from Stephen <sighs> King in this book that I don't know is real or not. Because you just you can't tell. Yeah. It could be real. It could be Stephen King. Stephen King actually saying this like in jest or in real, but you don't know. It just it just slowly it, it's that thing where like Basically, like what it's like the slow burn of it's not even horror, but it's the slow burn of that unease of that force of antagonism, where it's like someone is at the start of the novel they put a needle against your skin, and very slowly they start pushing, and you don't notice it at first because it's just a slight prick. It's like the from the boiling water. Yeah, and eventually you're like, oh, I'm bleeding. You're like, uh, yeah. (laughs) Um, so I had, I think we pretty well covered some of our favorite stuff. Um. So, to kind of round out, um, I wanted to talk about some problematic monsters. And the one I've got listed mainly is Sauron from Lord of the Rings. Yeah. Now, whatever you think of Lord of the Rings, if you don't think it's great, you're probably wrong. But <laughs> that's only because it's been done to death now. Yeah. Something to remember for the kids at home is that... Um, Lord of the Rings was my Star Wars. Yes. And that it was our generation. It was our Star Wars. Because yeah. it was right when... the It was just after the first prequel. So, mm-hmm. so it was like, you know, like yeah, we had Star Wars, but we didn't have the original Star Wars. We had the original Lord of the Rings films. It just they... so for us, like I, I remember watching all of them and In... thinking they were amazing because they went like they were the first like three hour movies I watched because yeah. they're long. 
They're really long. And it's so, like, for me if, as a kid, like, they're my Star Wars. If you didn't cry at the end of The Return of the King the first time... You, you don't have be, a You, you don't may not be human. Soul. Like, no. it's... Like, our it's generation... So it's just that kind of... Yeah, it's our Star Wars. But, um, but one of the things that makes Lord of the... One of the things that made Lord of the Rings so good is that no one had done that. Yeah. And Gary Gygax... Not was, even to that scale. No one had done it to that scale. No. And Gary Gygax, who invented D&D, um, that Dungeons & Dragons and Lord of the Rings are intrinsically linked forever. Because oh, yes. like, they, they are, are mirrors the of each same. other. <laughs> so what happened was no one had done it, and then they both did it. And now we've got to this point where everyone has done dragons and swords and knights and elves and dwarves and yeah. fucking whatever, you know, to yeah. death. It's everyone's been, done that high fantasy It's thing. been done so much that it's no longer interesting, right? Yeah. But the reason that Sauron is problematic as an antagonist is that he works in a lot of ways because he's this quite alien character. We never really... Like, all you see is manifestations of his will. You never yeah. really see him. Yeah, he's you, you, the most you see of him is just the tower. Yeah, and particularly and in the, just and but like in in the books at least you get a sense of him. Like you get a, you kind of get um, oh, I don't know how to explain it. Like it's in the books in particular. Like you get a sense of the kind of will he has. Yeah, because the the best representation of him is the effect he has on Frodo, especially. Well, the 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 the, the or just the ring bearer. The, the gravity. So. One of the things about Lord of the Rings, I think, that works in the in reference to Sauron is that the gravity of the object of the ring is bestowed upon it by everyone else except Sauron. Yeah. Initially. So, like, the reason that Sauron cares about it is because everyone knows that Sauron cares about it. Yeah, it's sort of a weird self-manifestation. Yeah. So, so he, it's like a placebo. He creates this ring, and yeah. he's like, this is, I've poured my will and my malice into it. But he's actually still a pretty powerful... Uh, he, he, he was originally a high elf, so he's still a pretty powerful elf yeah. with this magic, but this ring makes him infinitely more powerful. Yeah. But when he's defeated, he's like, well, that's the last bastion of my power left. I need to get that ring back, because that's how I come back into this world. That's my only way back in. Yeah. But Saron himself, as like the entity that exists as the tower, yeah. in the books at least, doesn't actually need the ring. He just thinks he does because everyone else keeps saying he does. And, like, Celebrimbor... So, basically, the premise is in, in during, the rec- during the reclamation of Mordor, so when Sauron takes Mordor back, when yep. the tower rises again, Celebrimbor and the Lone Ranger... And this was, this was kind of the plot of Shadow of Mordor, yeah. but they adapted it a bit. But Celebrimbor uh, manifests uh, with this Gondor Ranger... As we know it now, because the canon's been tweaked a little bit thanks mm. to this game. But Celebrimbor's willpower effectively tricked Sauron into thinking that the ring was the only way he could get his power back. Yeah. So he uh, to sort of trap him in something that is yeah quite easy to handle. <laughs> so he 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 um in in the appendices Celebrimbor is responsible for he literally cuts out the bit of Sauron's memory where he. Because Celebrimbor made the rings. He's the ring yeah. maker. Yeah. Celebrimbor cuts out the bit where the rings are just a manifestation of power. They're not all of it. Yeah. He cuts that out from Sauron's memory. So Sauron goes, I need Celebrimbor to make me another ring, or I need the ring itself. Yeah. So he believes that's his only way to get power back. So the reason he's scary is that this he goes to all ends to do this. So he, you know, stirs the mountain trolls that come down the hill in the first one. He has all of these, like, he builds these amazing armies, he commandeers Saruman, you know, he corrupts the White Wizard, does all this amazing stuff to try and get this ring back. 
But the reason that he's scary initially is that we don't really... Like, he, he doesn't... He's not a thing. Yeah. He's this idea. And he's a he's a figment of this world where everyone is like, well, you know, Sauron's rising again. And the fact... I think one of the testaments to The Hobbit, in fact, to talk about The Hobbit again, is that in that in that they focus on the fact that people don't believe that Sauron's back. And yeah. in the extended Lord of the Rings, there's a scene, there's a great scene where Gandalf goes to Saruman and Saruman's like, no, he can't be back. Like, he can't be back. Like, it's it's yeah. a Harry Potter thing where it's like, Voldemort can't be back. He can't be back. He's that bad that people want to not believe he's back. Yeah. And so the reason that he's problematic as a villain is that when you have the final confrontation with Frodo tossing the ring into the volcano, there's no one to actually confront. All you get is the manifestation of the the gravity of the ring in in um in uh, Gollum, yeah. Who goes mad like he finally loses it and he's yeah. like, I need that ring back. So in that way, the only way we get a sense of how powerful Sauron is is that he's corrupted this person to to do this, you know, to become Gollum. There's this really good analysis of the ending of uh, Return of the King as to sort of like an explanation as to why the ending is so long yeah that ba- the gist of it is basically that because frodo doesn't he doesn't actually drop the ring he simply like he doesn't he turns around and he's like no but then gollum it falls yeah it falls and gollum falls in with it so because frodo doesn't actually and you see it through the ending that frodo doesn't actually smile at all until the very end when he leaves Middle-earth mm. because the whole time he's you know when he when he gets out and like the fucking lava and everything and just before the eagles are coming you know he's he's not smiling he's not glad Sam is relieved Frodo is S- like Frodo is like he's shell-shocked I, Frodo is like I didn't succeed like Frodo is still like trapped because he never with the he ring because never... he never he never gave the ring up he yes. got it stolen from yes. him. Yes, and that's the same problem Golem has. Yeah. Yeah. Except Golem sort of is... Golem, I guess, because he dies with the ring, well, he's almost Oh, I, I meant before death. that. Like, the whole... Yeah. The whole Golem's whole problem is that he never relinquished it. It was, it was, it stolen. was stolen by yeah. what? It was lost and Bilbo took it from him. Yeah. You know? And the... And it's only when Frodo leaves Middle-earth when he's basically like, fuck this place, I'm out. He goes to the, he goes to the Grey Havens. Yeah, yeah, that's the only time he smiles because then, you know, he's he's pretty much free from... He's, he's free of that constraint. Yeah. Because yes. he's, he's leaving Middle-earth. Yeah. And even you even see it in Bilbo at the ending where Bilbo says, like, have you, have you seen that ring anywhere? Yeah. And because Bilbo's still trapped because Bilbo never had the freedom because Gandalf forced him to give it up yeah it's it's this um there's a great video by the nerd writer um by the way great amazing youtube channel you should all check out like just I think it might have been the nerd writer I don't know I'm not sure um but at like one of the best produced conceived youtube channels I've ever seen deserves deserves millions (laughs) and millions of views like if you haven't checked like check it out youtube the nerd writer yeah might just be nerd writer I think um but it's just writer, right? Yeah, writer is in W R I T E R. Not writer. Um, not <laughs> fucking Australian, Australian accent. <laughs> um, nerd writer. Nerd it's writer. like knife writer, but with glasses. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that um, I, it might have been his video. I'm not sure, but um, yeah, like one of the one of the reasons that Sauron is problematic is because you never really get to see like he's not the antagonist. He's just a force of antagonism. The antagonist is the ring. Yeah. And that is crazy. That Tolkien made that work because yeah. that is so hard. Like to put that much gravity on an object is to like as a writer that is just inconceivable. Like it would be, 
the amount of time that he would have he would have had to sat down and he would like Tolkien would have sat down at his desk and been like, okay, he wrote the appendices and he wrote the similarity, he wrote all this stuff, and he went, yeah. wrote the Hobbit, and then he went, okay, how, what can I do? He went, okay, Bilbo's ring, <sighs> maybe that was something else, maybe that was this other, all of this, and then it, it kind of it, it blossomed yeah. from there. But at some point, he must like it just is inconceivable to me that you could construct something that is that well conceived as an antagonistic force that the thing which created it becomes lesser than the object itself. Yeah. Well, it's... It's kind of what happens with the later Harry Potter books, I believe. Mm-hmm. With the fucking horror, whatever they the, call um, the The bits of Voldemort's soul. Yeah. The uh, Horcruxes. Yeah, Horcruxes. Yeah. Because, like... Because, like, they could have done this similar thing with Voldemort that they did with Saruman. Mm. And it probably, like, it would have made him a more interesting villain, but it would have... It probably Do you mean Sauron or Saruman? Sauron. Yeah. Like, make him... Because, like, in the first movie, he is basically like Sauron. You know, he's the one that must not be named. Yeah, he's, and he's the spectre. He's, yeah, you don't really know what it is. But then they show him, and you're like, okay, he doesn't have a nose. It's kind of weird. Like, and he sort of loses some of his... Oh, I don't know, that graveyard scene as a kid was... Cr- yeah, I mean, we, but... I think the problem was we were just not old and like we're sorry we're just a little too old to really be scared by him yeah yeah you know but like because he's like he's, he's, he's scary kinda, he, yeah he is but they're like compared to like because like harry potter and lord of the rings like for our generation were the two big sort of mm. fantasy things see i would argue that Sirius black in the prison of azkaban is scarier than Voldemort. Like, before you know who he is. Yeah. I, I mean, particularly... I mean, be, yeah, because you know, like, you learn so much about Voldemort throughout yeah. the series that he sort of loses some of his scariness. Some of the mystique. Yeah. But, but that for that entire novel, until you work out who Sirius is, even when you work out that he's related to Harry, he's this just ra- raving lunatic that can turn yeah. into a dog. Like, it's scary. Yeah, it's and weird. And the way that the film treats that is amazing. Like, the treatment of that in the Prisoner of Azkaban film is sensational. Yeah. Because... You know, there's that scene in the Leaky Cauldron where um, uh, Arthur drags Harry aside and he's like, Sirius has escaped. Like, and they walk in front of the poster and he's like, Sirius, is, like, he's out there. Yeah. And he drags Harry into that really dark corner of the room and he's like, promise me you won't go looking for him. And you get chill. I get chills thinking about that <laughs> scene because it's so well filmed. Yeah. And it's such a well... like The cinematography of that film is amazing. And the whole film, you feel unsettled. Yeah. And it's largely due to the direction, because it's lots of moving hand cams, and, like, nothing's ever really stable. It's a really, really good it's well film. It's yeah. amazing. But the reason that he's scary in that, until you, you know, meet him properly, and they're in the room where, they have, sort of revealed, yeah. where he has the jewel, and it's like, no, I was your father's friend, it was Pettigrew the whole time. Yeah. The reason he's scary is that you sort of... It's the reason that Boba Fett... Uh, not Boba Fett, Django... Wait, which one? Boba Fett, yeah. The reason that Boba Fett was cool is that it's the mystique that you create that makes him cool. And Sirius was scary because throughout the entire of that novel, it's this, like, mystique and this kind of build-up of, oh, my God, this person, like, he's so scary, like, he's killing people. You know, there's that great scene where he's, like, uh, it's like trying to catch smoke with bowls. I can't think of what the... Or with your bare hands or something. Yeah. You know, whatever the the statement is. And you're like, Jesus, this guy. (laughs) And he's like the only person to have escaped Azkaban. And you're like, oh my god, this guy is like crazy strong and powerful and clever and terrifying and he's coming to kill bloody young Harry. Well, that's the thing. Most, like, if you you create that sort of abstract 
just idea of something, people will scare themselves. Hmm. Which is the first type of monster that I talked about. Yes, and it this is. It's similar what Sauron is, where it's just like, you don't really know what he is, you just know that. And, like, the ring is obviously a physical thing, but, like, the connection between the ring and Sauron is never, like, really explicit. Like, it's implied yeah. most of the time, and it's shown through the things that happen to Frodo when he wears the ring. And the people around him that watch him wear the ring. Yeah, so, and you sort of create in your mind what this ring is, and it, you, you scare yourself, you're like, wow, that ring is freaky as fuck. Yeah. When, and like, on these... paper it seems cool, you turn invisible, yay. Yeah. No. <laughs> no. I mean, no. <laughs> even, you know, the even the, the frugal, uh, you, you know, it's, it's that, um... If you think about Aragorn's sword as the foil to the ring, because it is in the in the films at least, yeah. it's less so in the books. Um, sorry, no, it's the other way around. Sorry, it's more so in the books, less so in the films. Um, he he has this blade that was broken, and the yeah. blade is the thing that 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 killed Sauron the first time. Yeah. And when it's reforged, it's like it's it's the renewal of hope. It's the return of the king. It's yeah. this kind of um, the reclamation of well. There's still a chance we might get through this thing because we've got this one bastion of hope, and that's Aragorn and, and the, his yeah. ability to. And leave. the sword isn't the good thing about the sword is that it's not just a Deus Ex Machina. It's not just like, oh, by the way, we found the sword yeah. that killed Sauron. We can probably use it again. And it's like, ugh, like it's more of a symbol yeah. of the hope because you see it for like it's like the second film onwards. Like it's introduced in the second film, I think. Yes. And in the third film is when it's reforged. See, the... Uh, yeah, in the ex- in the books, it's reforged much earlier. Oh, really? Yeah, it's during yeah. the second book. Oh, okay. Um, but he doesn't... He refuses to use it for really a while. He doesn't really use it for a while, yeah. Yeah, because he's like, well, I'm not the ki- Like, not I'm the not king. the king. Yeah. I'm, the, I'm a ranger. Like, this is not... Yeah. yeah it's not and my it's blade. Because it's... Because it's not... And because Sauron isn't a physical thing, you know, like, if Sauron was, like, a person... You'd make the sword, you'd be like, okay, the sword kills the guy. The sword guy. can kill Sauron. Yeah. That's what the thing would be. It's like the only thing that can kill Sauron. But because Sauron is a symbol, it makes the sword a symbol as well. Yes. Because it's not if there's no... Because when you see a sword, the sword is a weapon. But because there's nothing to attack, really... Yeah. It sort of turns the sword into just the symbol, well, the which sword... is really well done. Yeah, and I think it's... You know, there's a... Um... There's this kind of great, this this great thing. I mean, we've talked about Lord of the Rings a lot in the last two weeks, and that's because a few reasons. I've been writing a whole lot. Like I've been, I've, I've been, been doing a lot. I've been like reading a lot about the making of the Hobbit and mm. why it's, it's so shit. <laughs> I the <laughs> like, um they like they stopped filming the third film like halfway through to catch up like the yep. script to yep. finish writing. You should thing. um if you haven't yet for the people at home, you should look up the extended um. Like the 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 behind the scenes DVD, stuff. Yeah. yeah, it's, it's super very interesting. interesting. Um, it really puts into perspective the difference between this, the yeah. original and then. And you can the sense Hobbit. it's one of those things where you can sense that there's a. You can tell that they're all just like we scraped through. <laughs> it's it's yeah. the it's the prequel thing. Like there's a yeah. great moment in the in the prequels behind the scenes where um where they've just watched the first final... F- it's, like, one of the final edits of the film. Yeah. Um, and it's the crew or whatever, and it's it's Lucas and it's his people. Um, and the the lights go up. Like, the credits roll, the lights go up. Um, and everyone kind and of looks... Just like, everyone, mm-hmm. everyone kind of looks at each other. Um, it's not good. And they're like... There's this moment where they're like, there's not enough time to fix it. Yeah. Um, and you go, oh. 
yeah okay and like it's just it's one of those moments where you're like oh that's what happened like the problem with films is that especially if you're george lucas you're not allowed to go and edit them well, he's cut. The, the problem is he's surrounded by yes men. That's a, I mean, that's that's a whole different problem. Like it's, but the reason that it's like that tonal thing. Like you just sometimes know if something isn't working. Yeah. Um, and I think from a like particularly talking about antagonists, one of the things that is true of doesn't matter if you're making a game, if you're doing a script, what like whatever your medium is. Um, when you construct a scene, you have to have movement of some description. And so, in the question, Merlin talks about um, having trouble getting the, the script to move. Yeah. So, what that tells me is that probably what you've... You've probably got the scene issue that a lot of people have when they first try and write stuff, is that a scene has to exist for a reason. So, like, a good example is uh, Boromir's death. At the start of the scene, you have life, and at the end of the scene, you have death. Yeah. That's the movement in the scene, is that... Someone has to die. And sometimes, structurally, your novel will, or your script, or your screenplay, or whatever it is, or your game, will demand that someone dies. Because that's what needs to happen for the story to make sense. And, you know, if you watch Game of Thrones, you'll understand this pretty intimately. Um, And once once you kind of educate yourself about this, you won't find yourself angry that characters have died. You'll just be able to enjoy the fact that you're sad. But, (laughs) like, a lot of people get really angry when he kills characters, but he's only killed, like, two main protagonists. Yeah. In the entire series so far. And I won't say who if you haven't watched Game of Thrones. But one of them occurs at the Red Wedding. And the other one just occurred at the end of the last season. Yeah. Um, that's the two... Those these, they're the only two protagonists that's killed. Yeah. Everyone else has been side characters or... I mean, you could argue that um, the Viper... So the Oberon versus the Mountain, that fight. Um, that was kind of uh, one of the first times where he killed two people at once that were super important to the story. Yeah. But he doesn't kill a lot of people, and a lot of people are really hung up on the fact that they think he does. <laughs> so what I would say as far as moving scenes and stuff is that if you can go, at the start of this scene, my character needs to be happy, and by the end they need to have lost hope. So yeah. they're hopeful, they're not hopeful. So uh, let's say our protagonist Jack is on his boat, and he's had a really good day, everything's going well for him, and he's going to go and ask the girl to go have a drink, like a date, who who is in the cabin next door. Yeah. Right? And so he goes... Something happens, and the end of the scene is that he's he's lost his hope and he's lost his confidence. Yeah. That's the structure you have. You go, for the next scene to work, he has to be feeling hopeless. So you add what we call something... There's no, like, you know, literary term for it, but something strange has to happen that you aren't expecting to get you to that point. Yeah. So he can't just go and ask her and she says no, because... That's not movement. That's, yeah, that's just... that's bad. That's just life, and no one wants to read about life. We want yeah. to read stories. So... He goes, and they're chatting, and, uh, you know, this, uh, something weird happens. Like, maybe an old flame, who he didn't know was on the ship, walks past. And is like, oh my god, it's you. And she's really affectionate. And it's really weird and awkward, and yeah. no one knows what to do. And then she walks away, and he's like, oh, so you want to go for a drink? And she's like, well, maybe you should go have a drink with that person instead. Yeah. <laughs> and you do that thing where you go, <laughs> yeah. Or, yeah, um, it's like an It's like an, oh, of course that happened. Yeah. It's like, what else would go wrong? Yeah, which works, because you've got that like you give your scene legs yeah so if you're making a game and this is a great example of um in i've been watching some firewatch footage because it's coming out soon yeah um and that's this game where you play as a park ranger uh and you never see another person as far as i'm aware i don't know if you do or not but you don't see a person for a long time um you see some people from afar a lot of the time yeah but you just see signs of people there's a great moment where at the start of a scene you have to be 
thinking that everything is fine, and at the end of the scene, you have to be freaking out. Yeah. Like, your protagonist is fine, and then freaking out. And the strange thing that happens is, you're having a conversation with your supervisor over the radio, as you do throughout the whole game. Yeah. You're just chatting about whatever, and you're flirting, and you're having a good conversation. So you're fine and happy, or whatever, and you get to your, uh, your, your tower, your bunk, where you live, um, and everything is f- fucking wrecked. Yeah. And, like, stuff is thrown out the window, and it's really fucked up. And you're like, who? So the the strange thing that happens between hopeless, strange things are fucked up, and having this normal conversation is it starts to become sunset, and you see someone on a ridge with a torch flashing their light at you, yeah, and they disappear. And on the radio, you're like, hey, um, is there anyone else out here? And she's like, not that I know of. And you go, ooh, yeah. <laughs> and you like, get back ooh. to the tower, and everything is ruined. Yeah. So the strange thing that makes that work is the the guy on the ridge with the torchlight. Yeah. If you didn't have that. You'd be like, well, it's, bears, it's bears, <laughs> yeah, like it. You lose the legs of your scene. Yeah. So I guess from the person's question specifically, when you construct your antagonist, and this will be easy once you've obsessed over them and you pour in some of that weird shit that makes them scary, and you've picked one of Ben's three categories. Once you've done all that stuff and you have this well-conceived villain, yeah. um, consider the way that scenes that involve them or involve their influence need to move and need to have legs. So, I think, sort of, if there's any takeaway that you can take from this, other than a few exercises that we both kind of have provided, yeah. I think your categories as well, if you can pick one, or, you know, you can mix them or whatever. Yeah, like, the, the second or third category, I keep pretty punching, similar. Keep punching my pop filter. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think the big takeaway from this, from, from this is that, um, structurally, for an antagonist to work, they have to give, like, the only reason to have an antagonist over... Like, a natural... So, like, if it's an external... Um, uh, so, you have external content, and external content is, like, weather. Or like, so, like, uh, the... You know, uh, the, the the film where the world ends... Uh, 2012? Yeah. The well, ex- any disaster film. Yeah, like, a lot of the time, the external... Well, well-written ones, it's an external content that creates the force of antagonism. So, like, the world ends, or... Yeah. Bad ones will try and, like, throw in an internal content, so a person to for you to root against. Yeah. So I saw San Andreas with Dwayne The Rock Johnson. I haven't seen it. Don't God awful. Do it. not waste your money. No. Um, but I saw it because I knew it would be bad. And it's a good it's yeah. a good practice as anyone that's writing any kind of story or working on anything creative to see what's bad. Yeah. Um, and to give The Rock his credit, he tried. Not very hard, but he tried. <laughs> and so there's it. The you can tell the script was designed with no antagonist in mind. And at the last second, they make one of the guys who's kind of a dick do some he like pushes some people out of the way to get into a helicopter or whatever and they die and then at the end he gets his comeuppance because he gets killed oh, oh wow so they sort okay. of manufacture an internal content antagonist for the sake of audiences need someone to root against yeah don't do that because it cheapens your shit yeah um and if you're writing a novel say you've written a novel and you go to an editor and they say you need to have internal content protagonist or antagonist just tell them to fuck off and go take it to a different publishing house. Like, yeah. understand the rules of how to construct good antagonism. And go and research it. I think, like, the best thing you can do is go watch a bunch of horror films. Go read some good horror novels. Um, I'll leave a... I mean, we talked about all the books that we love, but I'll leave yeah. a list in the show notes if I can remember. Yeah. Um, go read some. Just, you know, do some research. Even just Google, like... There's some great explanation videos of really good antagonism. Um, you mentioned before um, the three types of horror, which was yeah, from extra credits. Extra credits. They do. 
They have two videos, one about monsters and one about horror protagonists, which is also a good place to look. Mm. Yes, because protagonist 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 is half is like a third of like horror is like setting monster protagonist. Yeah. And you can you can kind of like put more effort into one or the other, but having all three is really good. Mm. Like Alien, amazing setting, and you'll amazing find protagonist, pretty good monster, pretty good monster. <laughs> and the, the great thing I imagine when they were writing that script and con- coming up with that story is that the scenes kind of produce their own legs. Yeah, because when you put a bunch of good stuff in a in a in a tin can, you shake it up, yeah. good shit happens because the the ingredients you're cooking with yeah. are good ingredients. And so it's like. The setting of that film is held up by its amazing, like, art design. Oh, phenomenal. Like, the best. So well conceived. It's, it's it, a genre of its own now. If you haven't, if you're not aware of that, go look up, um, there's a great, uh, video that, uh, I want to say it was, uh, Good, uh, I can't think of who, Good being G-U-U-D-E, but, um, uh, I think it's, I think it's his, he, he does a, he does a commentary playthrough of the game. But he grew uh, up... Alien Isolation. Uh, yeah. yeah. But he grew up with the Alien films. Yeah. And so he talks about the art style, because the game the game very closely mirrors that. The, of, yeah, the retro-futurism. Yeah. And he but talks... Like, pre-80s retro-futurism. Yeah. And he talks about growing up with technology like that, and it's really interesting to hear about what it's like to have someone recreate that, but in, in this sort of futuristic setting. Yeah. And it's that thing where it's familiar enough that... Every time you see something you recognize, it just kind of it kind of like tweaks. Uh, it it it, it prick, you prickle with recognition. Yeah. And if it doesn't matter what the descri- like as a creator, your your goal at all times isn't to describe stuff. It's to offer enough that your reader can prickle with recognition and imagine the rest. Yeah. So like in the Slender Games, um, you don't necessarily have to like deck out a a Cub Scout hole in a forest if you put enough little details in there you kind of construct that yourself yeah. you know you work it you go okay there's a banner out the front that's torn down as it's colorful there's like a room full of this and there's like a sewing station and there's some supplies and some hiking gear and this and this and that and you kind of go yeah. oh this has got the sense of being you uh, don't have scouts. to cover every room with like this is a scout hall. <laughs> like, yeah. Like, you, yeah, so trust trust that when you put all those ingredients into your bag, uh, in your story bag, and you shake them up, make sure the ingredients are quality, and what you'll find is that, you, like, particularly with antagonism, if it's good, it will breathe life into everything else. Your, anta- yeah. your protagonist will naturally, like, become more fleshed out, because they're facing these more interesting challenges. Yeah. So I guess I mean I don't I don't really know what else there is to say. I mean we could talk about this for hours because this is I love <laughs> narrative structure. Yeah. Well, I'll, pr- I'll probably do a video on it sooner or later on DCM Works with with our upcoming um, YouTube channel stuff. But yeah, so focus on go go and look up the 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 three categories. Yeah. Um, go rewind, listen to this again in a few days. So let it soak in, come back to it. Um, and yeah, my best recommendation is use those three categories, pick and choose. Spend time with your antagonist. Yeah. Think about their motivations. Think about the stuff that they would do. Go through some mental exercises. And if you do it well enough, you'll find that it kind of writes itself. Yeah. Because um, when you cook with good ingredients, good shit happens. Pretty much. So, yeah. I mean, that's probably about it for this episode. Um, yeah. Loath as I am to stop talking about... Because I love this <laughs> stuff. Horror. Um Yeah. It's so good. Yeah. Um, got any closing thoughts for us there, Ben? Not really. Not really. It's no. so hot in Australia. It it's boiling. So hot. Gotta get this fan going. Oh, um, 
Yeah, so where can people find us, Ben? Uh, podcast at dcm.works if you want to email us qu- questions yes. and shit. Uh, Twitter is dcm underscore works. Yeah, we have t-shirts somewhere. Redbubble.com slash people slash dcm. Or just yeah. see the show notes. Uh, Patreon.com slash dcm works. Yep. All this stuff is down below. Um, and for any business inquiries, david at dcm.works. Fancy. Yeah, I mean, other than that, um, this I really enjoyed this. Yeah, the first, fun. admittedly, the first half, I was really, I was a bit um, out of it. <laughs> yeah. I've, I've been, I've been editing all day. Yeah, but um, yeah, I this is my favorite shit. So I love it as well. It's good, good fun. Good fun. Um, yeah. Otherwise, keep an eye out. Uh, we got some stuff on the horizon. So yeah, thanks for everyone who supports us and listens. And if wherever you consume this, if you give it a hot like or a rating or a subscribe thumbs or up or sus- subscribe, whatever it is, whatever on. you use, give it a hot whatever give that it is, something. and we'll certainly notice. Yep. Um, yeah, I mean, that's... Goodbye? Bye. Bye. Well done. And, like, the gameplay is super fun. And, like, because those three things are there, it's, like, it's exceptionally good. I could do it in a heartbeat and make millions, but it would feel like gouging my soul out. Yeah. Jurassic Park's a little more like DDR. If Shrek is a fairy tale creature, can he actually own land and want to kick them off? Where did that come from? You have to make a lot of shit up to make good art. Yeah, yeah. That's, like, that's just the truth, like.